In this episode, Jenny Stone, a partner at RBP, is joined by Peter Perry, a VAT consultant who specializes in the medical profession. They're going to be discussing the VAT issues that PCNs and their member practices are facing with the supply of staff who are employed under the additional roles funding. Accountancy on Prescription by RBP one of the leading firms of medical specialist accountants. We know what you find tough, but don't you worry, as we know our stuff. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Accountancy on Prescription. I'm Jenny Stone, one of the partners at RBP, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Peter Perry. Hi, Peter. How are you? Not too bad. Keeping well, thank you. Good. Peter, we've been working with you for probably over 25 years. Do you want to do a brief introduction about yourself? Yes, I started work in primary care in 1992, courtesy of a Swedish drug company that I'd never heard of. And they were launching LoadSec, which was the world's first proton pumping unit. And they wanted somebody to lecture on VAT. And at the time, they used to fly the GPs to Jersey, and then it was the Grand at Brighton and Balmoral at Edinburgh. So I spent quite a few weekends in 92 and 93 lecturing GPs on VAT, and they came up afterwards and say, oh, we've got some VAT issues, can you help out? And my first involvement with RBP came in the mid-90s, shortly afterwards, Quite inevitable, really, given, you know, your profile in primary care and the number of practices you look after. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that we're both specialists in in dealing with general practice. And I was going to say, and I know I'm always putting you in touch with some of my clients, so that's great. What we're going to talk about today on this episode is normally GP practices don't have to worry about VAT unless, of course, they're a dispensing practice because they are exempt. Now, with the introduction of PCNs, there are VAT issues that practices and their PCNs need to understand. And Peter's going to be going through and we're going to be talking about those issues and what you need to do to avoid having to register for VAT. Peter, just before we get into the detail about PCNs, I think it's probably helpful just to do a very quick overview on why GP practices don't normally need to register for VAT and what the exemption is. Yeah, there's an overarching VAT health exemption, which exempts the supplies of healthcare, where the primary purpose is really for the benefit of the patient. And it's performed by registered health professionals people working under the supervision of registered health professionals. For example, if you take most medical practices, whether it's their standard GMS contract or indeed private medical work, then to be VAT exempt because the primary benefit is the patient's health. There's just a sliver of some activity, very low value, which is potentially VAT because HMRC have said, well, the patient's health is secondary. Primary purpose, for example, is to get an HGV license or certified suitability to drive vehicles or DWP reports. So most practices are not VAT registered. They do make VATable supplies of a very, very thin sliver. And what we have at the moment, well, until PCNs came along, basically GP practices would only be VAT registered really for one of two reasons. One, as you said, they're dispensing and they're dispensing zero-rated drugs. Or two, that they've built a property 
and the partnership. And they VAT registered themselves and the property and elected to charge VAT to tenants like pharmacies and dentists so that they can recover a percentage of the build cost. So where we are really in, in since 92, 30 years I've been in primary care, until very recently, that's where we were. And then over the last few years, because of the introduction of PCNs, there's this third category. Yes, absolutely. And I was going to say, we very rarely had to deal with BAT, but obviously since the introduction of PCNs, there's obviously a lot of discussion, and I'm sure lots of our listeners would have heard about VAT and PCNs. Can you just talk about sort of what issues you've seen, you know, and what have been identified as a result of PCNs being introduced? Well, the starting point would be that in virtually all cases, PCN doesn't actually exist. Yeah, absolutely. I think when PCNs were introduced, nobody really thought through, did they, the accountancy or legal aspect yeah. of, of the idea? Yeah. So basically, as I understand it, PCN in most cases is there's a confederation, a loose confederation of four or five practices, which have been grouped for geographical purposes. And so, well, you're all in a similar area. So we're going to call you a PCN. But it doesn't exist other than that. And then the NHS has come along and said, oh, we're going to give you collectively this amount of money to do certain things that this, this money's intended for. And then they will say, oh, we need a practice to hold this money on behalf of all. So each practice has an allocation of those funds. And then they do things and they basically amortise that money. They use up that pot of money doing the things for which it's allocated from. The way that that's done in practice has caused that issue. And when the blue paper came out on PCNs, whenever it, it discussed this, that, and, and the other, when it came to VAT, it, all, it just said there might be a VAT issue. Yes, <laughs> I done. know. It just <laughs> said, there, might, there might be a VAT issue. But we can now just chat about what is the single most important factor that the practice need to be aware of with the PCNs and, and what is happening on the grounds. And that is, if we take clinical pharmacists, social prescribers, you know, they're two activities that this extra PCN funding has come in to deliver. But there's no PCN as such. It doesn't exist. So the PCN can't employ the clinical pharmacists or the social prescribers exist. So we find that practices that are members employ those members of staff and then those members of staff do work not only for their patients where they're employed, that's not a they're just employed by the practice, that's not a problem. But the potential VAT issue comes when those staff then start doing work other practices. Because yes. that was- in itself's not a problem. Because a free supply of services is not a vatable supply. But the problem is. The practice is employing the staff and then it's taking the money for what it does from that central pot. So for that purposes, what we've got is we've got a supply of staff by a practice that legally employs them to other practices. And then we've got the consideration, the vatable sum. That's the taking of that money from the pot. And I think that's why this is frequently missed. because. You know, the practice is just taking the money from the pot. Now, the third problem here is that the money that they're taking 
isn't their money. Yes, that's it's right. It's the other practice's money. So yes. that's where you have the vatable support. Yes. And Peter, because that's exactly what's happened, is obviously, and as the staff have grown, practices are putting these PCN additional role staff onto their payroll, but they are supplying them to all of the practices that are in those member areas. And so that supply of staff, if the VAT threshold is 85,000. So if that supply to the other practices is more than 85,000, then the practice then, is that right? The practice would then have to register for VAT. Yes. And as we've discussed previously on many occasions, you always, and something you're always looking to do, you've always got to take into account the other vatable supplies it might be making anyway. Yes, absolutely. So it might have £10,000 worth of DWP reports and HGV medicals to, to be taken into account. And it would be the supply to other practices. So if they employed, I don't know, a couple of clinical pharmacists and it was 100000 let's say, they had on their payroll, but they were only supplying 50000 worth of staff, would they then not have a VAT issue or that particular practice not have a VAT issue because it's below the threshold? You, you look at the value of the supply to outside of their practice yes, or yes. their partnership. Because I think when PCNs first came in, a lot of practices were trying to distribute the additional role staff between the member practices to try and keep below the VAT threshold. But I think the reality now is that the staff that they're employing has grown so much that they're probably all now exceeding the VAT, the VAT threshold. Yeah, when we had the video conferences, some of your PCN clients, probably over the last two years, now we have said to them that's a short to early medium term solution that, you know, you can spread the employment of these people around the PCN so that individually none of you exceed the VAT registration limit. But when you looked at that blue paper and how the PCN activity was to be rolled out, it was going to become very significant. Some PCNs of when we've had the video call, oh, in X year's time, the PCN funding is going to be five million. Yeah, no, That's absolutely. It. I've got PCNs <laughs> that have got over a million pounds of additional role staff now. So, you know, there definitely is a VAT issue. And I think, like you say, because practices don't have to consider VAT, I don't think PCNs are fully understanding that there is a VAT issue with the supply of staff that they are putting on and then supplying to other practices. Yes, and I think generally HMRC are behind the gameplay on this one. The PCNs don't exist, so they're not filing accounts. HMRC have got a team around the country, looked at accounts that are submitted, and then just as a quick checkup, they're VAT registered. Well, that's not going to work with the PCN, just they don't file accounts, they don't exist. And then that same team, if it looked at the medical practice and saw that it had turnover of 2.8, 3.2 million, 1.6 million, 1.2 million, 1.4 million, they just look at it and think, oh, what are they? Oh, they're a medical practice. Oh, they're services exempt. So HMRC are not getting into these practices to look inside that figure to spot that, oh, there's a supply of staff to other practices, which totals 200,000. What will be an issue is that I think HMRC will, I don't know, at some point, I think somebody's going to get picked up 
I was going to say, I agree. I was going to say people listening don't think just because you don't file PCN accounts that this won't get picked up because I agree with you. And I know HMRC are aware about PCNs because they've issued information about their opinion of clinical directors. So although they may not be filing accounts, I don't think, like you say, it won't go under the radar for too long, will it? And they will pick it up on this. When this first came in, in about well, a few years ago, certainly four or five years ago, I thought, well, HMRC are actually quite reasonable and they might take a very, very, very light approach to this. But I was quite surprised within literally a few months, the test case appeared going before the VAT tribunal for medicine and it involved clinical pharmacists. So I thought, well, wow, they've obviously picked up on medicine limited and challenged them. And it's a classic case for us to discuss now, so all the viewers and listeners can see what the issue is. Interestingly, Medicy Limited was a privately owned company that supplied clinical pharmacists. And that's why they got picked up, because they weren't a medical practice. So yes. when that HMRC team looked at their accounts, and what do they do? We supply clinical pharmacists. Are you a medical practice? Have you got a GMS contract? No, no. Then HMRC decided that their supplies were vatable and that medicine should be counted for VAT on the supply of all the clinical pharmacists, all the GP practices that it supplied clinical pharmacists to. And it went to court, it went to the lower tax tribunal. The taxpayer won, but won by an absolute whisker. And there's a lot of thought that the tribunal chairman was very generous to the taxpayer. Right. I gave them the benefit of the doubt, if I that way. But the basic argument is, is a well-trodden argument that's cropped up in four or five cases over the last 10 years. And it's a classic argument where HMRC come along and say, your services are vatable. You're basically just supplying people. You're supplying staff. And the taxpayer's saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm making a supply of healthcare. I'm acting as principal. And a lot of the Medici tribunal hearing was the judge trying to get to the bottom of, and this is what, in all the cases, the courts focus on one word, control. Who has control of the staff? And it was pleaded before the tax tribunal on behalf of Medici that at all times, Medici kept control of the staff, the clinical pharmacists, and were make, basically, therefore, making a clinical supply and that they were supported. But in virtually all the other cases, the courts, the judges have ruled that it was a vatable supply because the recipients were using and controlling the staff. There was a case involving hospital anaesthetists applied in London on a locum basis, and that went to court after medicine and it lost. They basically said, no, you're just an agency supplying staff for London hospitals. These anaesthetists, when they're in the London hospitals, they're working under the hospital's NHS controls. That hospital, so they're under NHS control, the hospital control, but you're just supplying staff, it's fatable. So this is a very real issue. And from speaking to or having the video conferences with your PCN client groupings, generally speaking, feedback I'm getting is that. Yes, clinical pharmacists and social prescribers are basically under the control of whatever practice they're working in. 
And that's exactly what I was going to say, Peter, that actually with all PCNs, you'll have a clinical pharmacist that might work around four practices in the PCN, but they are controlled by each individual practice that they go into. So in what you're saying is that is clearly, although it is medical services, it is actually a supply of staff because the individual practices are controlling what they do. Yes. So the, in the VAT transaction is there's a VATable supply of a person to another yeah. practice. It's that other practice that's undertaking the clinical work. Yes. And as you say, the PCN is an illegal entity. So it would be the practice that has the staff on their payroll who are supplying them to the other practices that would have to register for VAT. And in theory, well, if they had to register for VAT, they would then obviously have to charge 20% VAT on the supply of that member of staff. Yes, yes. And presumably, the rest of the PCNs would, would be quite decent and reasonable. And what will probably happen in practice was liability. It would just come out of the PCN budget. Yes, yes. So there'd be yes. less, there'd be <laughs> a shortfall. Absolutely less money yeah. there. For there'd be a cutback in services next year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure the PCNs would stick together and wouldn't let one individual practice pick up the back yeah. door for 100,000, 200,000, 300, or, or what it is. But what we have said, whilst each practice employing to keep below the limits a short solution, you know, we have looked at the PCNs, your, your clients, sort of offering medium-term solutions and a medium to long-term And I was going to say, Peter, so to avoid, because no PCN or practice will want to register for VAT. So what can they do if they're being faced with this issue? What are the ways well, around it? A medium-term issue is they could consider joint employment of the staff. So that the PCNs, if there's five practices in the PCN, that there could be a joint employment of the staff that are going to around the various Jointly employed. So one practice could act as lead as paymaster and pay all the taxes and that's the contract of employment is explicit and say that you are, you know, DRX, you are jointly employed by practice A, B, C, D, and E. So joint employment. But I have to say that whilst it's a simple solution <laughs> in practice and it's easy to operate, a lot of the practice in the PCNs have thought it's not appropriate. Yeah, I was I was going to say a lot of I know when I talk to PCNs and I talk to practices and I say and we're talking about the VAT and I say, have you got joint employment contracts? And I think right at the beginning, I think the solicitors kind of say the joint employment contracts are a lot more complicated than like you said, it's a simple solution, but it sounds like it's a lot more complicated to have the joint employment contracts. So I think you're right that not many PCNs necessarily have these in place. Hmm. Which takes us on to the medium to longer term solution, particularly looking at the value of the rollout going forward. Yes. And as a firm, we do a lot of work in the education sector. And <laughs> I was about to say the country might be short of tax revenues at the moment. But you might yeah. remember the late 2000s, we were in a similar position, we'd run out of money. And that time the coalition Conservative and Liberal government came in in 2010. They were saying, well, there's going to be a, a limitation on, on funding coming forward and we've got to look for savings. And they enacted European legislation on the VAT side for cost sharing. And this was very interesting because it came in in late 2000s, 12 years ago. 
to assist the education sector because it wanted more sharing in the education sector. But they said, oh, well, there's a problem because if we employ a finance director and make the finance director available to the other colleges, we've got to charge that. So there was a solution introduced about 12 years ago to cover this very same issue, and it's called the, the cost-sharing group function. And the beauty of it is that it's very simple. The legislation, four lines, so it's very, very simple, and all it requires is another legal entity set up. I recommend it's just ordinary off-the-shelf the share company. It doesn't even have to be a complicated Limited by guarantee, which has a not for profit ethos or, or, or stature. It can be an ordinary share company. All the participants have to have a share in that company. And all it has to do is break even over a longer period of time. And HMRC, again, another example of HMRC being very reasonable. They said, Oh, no, no, you can, you can make surpluses this year and next year, but you might be saving up for something. Then you spend them in years three and four. So HMRC, Really, very, very helpful, very, very generous. They're saying over the longer period of time, you should be broadly break even. So the cost sharing group fits the bill perfectly. And then the cost sharing group is an entity, it's the company. It can employ all the PCN staff. And then the cost is then charged down to the practices. One of the rules, one of the four rules, is that each participant is only charged their share but that's what you'd want to do that's anyway, what it is you? exactly that and that's what's happening <laughs> anyway think any of the practices are going to put their hands up to volunteer to take a higher share of the cost than is attributed to you know to their practice and their patients so if pcns are with us you know for the future yes yes and if pcns turnovers are going to increase then i think eventually it's going to be inevitable that yes all of these PCN groupings will end up with a forming company. Yes. And I think that's exactly what we're starting to see. So I know we've got sort of clients now that are already looking to set up a separate limited company. And it's just to kind of stress that the PCN, as it is at the moment, isn't a legal entity. So to obviously meet the cost sharing exemptions, you've got to be a separate legal entity. So we are starting to see PCNs incorporating as a limited company so that they don't have this fat issue. And I agree with you when, when PCNs say to me, well, Jenny, why should we be setting up a company? company, you know, one of the reasons I say is, well, the main issue is the VAT and the supply of staff. This is the way, you know, a simple way around that issue. Yeah. And that's why it was introduced 12 years ago. Yes. You know, yes. there was, particularly with further education colleges, they said, if you've got a geographical concentration or further education college, they don't all need a finance director. They don't all need a head of HR. They don't need you know, a head of admins, a head of admissions. So this was a way that the colleges could, you know, share, you know, the expertise of these people. So it's it's put in, you know, specifically to cover this situation. I know in the early days we discussed this, you said there were some other non-fat issues like pension but they, yeah, they've been resolved. So they've, yeah, absolutely. And funny enough, I was just going to mention that because one of the issues has been is that obviously all the PCN staff want to have obviously access to the NHS pension. So 
if you're setting up as a limited company for your cost sharing group, you can at the moment, so NHS pensions, you can apply for temporary access to the NHS pension scheme for all the additional role staff that are within the limited company. At the moment, they're saying it's temporary access, but actually it's with a view that they will obviously update and change the regulations so that actually PCN staff can all be on the NHS pension. So the NHS pension issue, which again, because when PCNs came in, no one had thought all of this through, that has all been resolved. So the limited company can employ all the staff on the payroll and apply for access to the NHS pension scheme. So at the moment, it's under a temporary measure with the view that either that temporary measure will get extended or it will actually be part of regulations. So yeah, absolutely. So What's interesting, because obviously one of the things with the cost sharing group is that they can't make a profit to distribute to the shareholders. But actually what you've said is that they can make a surplus. So in year one, they might make a surplus of 60,000, pay their corporation tax on that. And then obviously, as long as they're spending it. So if they decide that they want to invest in I don't know, for the member practices, some of them have have used money for telephone systems or software. Then if they've made the surplus in one year, as long as it's spent within the next year or the year after, then that is okay. That's that's interesting. HMRC have said over a longer period of time. I'm thinking when HMRC used the term a longer period of time, I'm thinking perhaps even looking, you know, over eight, ten years. I think if, if, if it requires surpluses to acquire something that was quite expensive and you would demonstrate to HMRC why you know we've got board minutes (laughs) that this is what we're doing then HMRC will go with that I've always found HMRC actually to be very very reasonable and said well what you know well this looks as though you're making a profit oh no no they're surpluses it will be but it's going to be spent and then over a broader period of time what it's always helpful to have is the minutes and you can say to HMRC, well, no, we can give you the minutes. You know, this is, this is all genuine and it's planned. And then HMRC, yes. oh, that's fine. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think at the moment is obviously because PCNs aren't legal entities, then any surplus they're making should be shared between the practices and tax paid on that. So obviously having some surplus that's sitting in the limited company, the corporation tax rate is lower. But it, as you've very clearly said, it needs to be spent. So I think that has to be very clear that even if it's not spent in maybe the first couple of years, it has to be spent because the company, unlike normal sort of limited companies, it can't make a profit to distribute to shareholders. Correct. It would then fall foul of the VAT exam. And can I ask with the cost sharing groups, are there any implications if you've got, say, five GP practices, but one of those is a dispensing practice and therefore then registered for VAT? Does that add sort of more complications? In practice, I have looked at that. And in practice, no. There was a case, a Luxembourg case that went to Europe. This is where it gets very, very technical. And Luxembourg and the UK were referred to the European Court for breaking the terms of the exemption and being too generous. And basically, Luxembourg and the UK allowed banks and insurance companies to use the cost-sharing exemption. And the European Court ruled against Luxembourg and said, I'll do that. This exemption is only available in basically do-good sectors like or healthcare, not banking or insurance. So they were thrown out of the exemption on cost sharing. And the ruling said, you know, this is, you know, it can be an issue where you're making 
you know, you're doing things which are not qualifying. But in, in practice, I don't see it being an issue because dispensing practices basically have two, two activities. <laughs> yes. <laughs> one is their medical services and one is the dispensing. And the cost-sharing group and what it's supplying would be wholly attributable to the medical practice. It's not going to get involved in dispensing. Yes. Like yes. So this gets very technical, but looking yes. at the European judgments, I, I believe it doesn't. It's not an issue. No, well, that's good news then. That's what the news. judge was basically saying. The judge was saying, oh, look, if your business is some 50% an issue here, that only half the cost-sharing group services qualify for the exemption. But I think the point the judge was making, that's because you're using the services 50-50 for yes. benefiting purposes and 50% for non-benefiting purposes. So I, I think that's what the judge meant. And, and if we look at the circumstance here, the cost-sharing group services would relate wholly to the GMS contract. Yes, which are exempt. Gonna... Yes. So to answer the question, I don't see it. Brilliant. That's good news. That's good news. And can I ask you just maybe one final question, because there's obviously been a lot of talk about clinical directors. And I think originally there was thought that the work they carried out would be exempt because they're involved in healthcare. But my understanding is HMRC have said, well, actually, the work that they are doing is obviously of a management role and therefore is battable. So, again, the payment of clinical directors, is that then subject to VAT? I think this is something that's changed over the last 10, 12 years. And I don't just mean HMRT's view. I mean, what the clinical directors are doing has changed. Yes, yes, yes. Because we didn't have PCN or anything like that six years ago. And I think if we went back 12 years, that where you had clinical directors, where like a senior GP would step he or she, would oversee the delivery of the NHS in that yes. locality. I did see that as an exempt supply. And I did speak to some of the clinical directors themselves. And they assured me that all their concern was the delivery of medical services and was looking at where they could better target healthcare. And they said, as far as they're concerned, all of their time was on clinical matters. Yes. benefit of their patients. So I think 10, 12 years ago, the roles they had, I think it probably was exempt. If it went forward to the tribunal like Medici, yes. there yes. might be a bit of a bun fight in the court. But I think hearing all the evidence 12 years ago, the judge would say, oh, no, I'm satisfied that what you're doing is primarily for the benefit of the patient's yes. health. You are the overseer of it all. You are the top tier of this delivery of healthcare. Whereas now, I think a lot of these clinical director roles have changed. Yes, for the PCN, yes, yes. And they're more like generals, you know, manoeuvring their armies uh, into position. And I think there's more of an argument now that what they're doing is more management of facilities. And I think that's exactly... that would be... On balance, that would be standard rated. Yeah. So I think that whilst people say, well, HMRC's views on it might have changed, I think what the clinical directors are primarily doing has changed. 
Yes. But obviously, if it's the PCN clinical director and you are setting up a limited company with a cost sharing group, then the clinical director would actually go on the payroll. It would have to be an employed member of staff. So that's another thing that we've been advising where where some of our PCNs are incorporating is the clinical director has to go on the pay. Because it is management, it's management of the PCN. Yeah, they and others can go on to the cost-sharing group. Yes. And the charge is down to the practices of exempt. So it's a very good point. If it is identified, it can be sorted. Yes, yes. Peter, thank you. That has been really, really helpful because I know when I'm going around talking to practices and PCNs and we talk about VAT, I think, as you say, PCNs and practices aren't thinking about it. And at the moment, it's kind of under HMRC's radar because they're not legal entities, they're not filing accounts. But that doesn't mean that if you're a practice and you're employing staff that you're supplying through the PCN, you do need to be thinking about the VAT. And I know, Peter, you're always available, aren't you, to have a meeting? I know I always put sort of clients your way to have a meeting so that you can go through anything with them with the VAT. So I will put all your contact details into sort of our show notes. But thank you, Peter. That's been really helpful. Just to mention, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have, then please obviously share it with your colleagues and also like and rate it. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. You have been listening to RBP's Accountancy on Prescription podcast. For any updates, please visit www.rbp.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at RBPCA. The contents of this podcast is for general guidance and informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of advice. The information provided by RBP is of a general nature. Appropriate and tailored advice or independent research should be obtained before making any decisions. RBP does not accept any liability for any loss or damage which is incurred from you acting or not acting as a result of listening to Accountancy on Prescription.